0: is absolutely insufficient to teach us everything that we need to know about salvation and about God's will for our life. Therefore, God, of his infinite condescension to man, has given us a most perfect revelation of himself and of his will in the scriptures. Contained in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. These scriptures of the Old and New Testament are of divine authority. They're not to be believed or received because of any other testimony than the fact that God Himself is the author. And he proclaims himself to be the truth, the one who inspired these scriptures. That is the ground, that is the authority upon which the scriptures are to be believed and received. These scriptures, the Confession of Faith, Larger and Shorter Catechism teach, these scriptures are the alone, perfect, and complete rule both for faith and practice, containing a full and ample revelation of the whole counsel of God, both respecting God's glory and the salvation of men. It is by these scriptures that all judgments of men all spirits that proclaim to be from God, all doctrines, all controversies in religion, everything of that nature is to be brought before the Supreme Judge being the Holy Scriptures, God speaking in the Holy Scriptures. And in that sentence, we are to rest our judgment. That, in summary is what the confession, larger and shorter catechisms teach, concerning the Holy Scriptures. Now, as you see, I will go through each of these doctrines and I will be uh, trying to stick closely to what I, I I have here in front of me, but uh, we will be, uh, as I said, now articulating some of the things that are thereby refuted by this first Doctrine on the Holy Scriptures. For example, this teaching of the Holy Scriptures that we find in our confessional standards does refute and condemn popery. Does condemn and refute Roman Roman Catholicism? Why? Because uh, Rome teaches that her courts are infallible, whereas the Scripture and the confessional standards teach that the Scripture is alone infallible and that all decisions of courts must be brought ultimately before God speaking in the word of God. It also refutes charismatic teaching because in charismatic and Pentecostal teaching, there is ongoing revelation from God. Now, if you have ongoing revelation from God, there must be an authority of God upon that revelation. But again, our confessional standards say that the word of God is alone the infallible rule of faith and practice, not any other revelation. It also, at the same time, condemns uh, liberalism, Within the church, which says that that uh, the scriptures are in fact not authoritative, uh, that they're not inspired, that parts of them are inspired, other parts are not inspired, various forms that liberalism would take, or neo-orthodoxy, which says that the word of God, the scriptures become the word of God when you have this experience with the word of God. Then it becomes the Word of God. In other words, according to Neo-Orthodoxy, the Scripture contains the Word of God. It, it actually becomes the Word of God at that moment when the lights go on in your head. At that point, there is an experience, existentialism, there is an experience with the Word of God. Neo-Orthodoxy. Uh, That is not what the scripture teaches. It again teaches, and the confessional standards uphold the fact that, that it is all authoritative from beginning to end because God speaks in it. The second doctrine is that of God. Holy scriptures, the first one, that of God, the second. Concerning The doctrine of God, our confessional standards, teach, by way of summary, that there is one infinite, eternal, self-existent being. And that this only true and living God, who is absolutely all-sufficient, who does not need anyone outside of himself, he exists for His own glory. No one contributed to His existence, maintains His, his existence. He is self-existent. He, he has always existed. There has never been a time when He did not exist. This is the one the confessional standards speak of. He is all existence, having all being, perfection, glory, and blessedness in and of himself. He doesn't derive any perfection or glory from any other being. He is all-glorious. He is perfect. No one can add to his glory. Glorifying God does not mean that we add in some way to his glory because if he's all-glorious, it's like a cup that's full. You can't add to a cup that's already full. To glorify God means that we reflect the glory of God. He is all-glorious. And He subsists, He exists in three distinct divine persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In one and the same undivided essence and Godhead. In other words, there are not three different essences or substances. One in the Father, another in the Son, and a third in the Holy Spirit. One undivided essence and substance that is shared by three persons. All of them equally the same in substance, power, and glory, although they are distinguished by their personal properties. So that we say that there is one God and three persons. One God, yet three persons. Now. You see, I have to go through these rather quickly. I wish I could spend a lot more time, but this could take 32 weeks rather than two or three weeks. And so, uh, in, under this particular doctrine of God, the confessional standards testify against all forms of Unitarianism. Now, Unitarianism simply is that there's only one person in the Godhead. Not that there's one God. We believe that there's one God. The confession teaches that there's one God. But Unitarianism says there's not only one God, but only one person. Whereas Trinitarianism, which is taught in the confession, says there's one God and three persons. And so this testifies against all Unitarianism. And a particularly um, subtle form of Unitarianism today, which even manages to creep into churches and within the charismatic Pentecostal churches is is deemed as being orthodox at times, is the doctrine of oneness. The doctrine of oneness, which again teaches that God is one God, but one person. And yet, that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Follow me for just a moment. Oneness teaches there's one God and one person. But yet, this one God who exists as one person, and in oneness, the one person's name is Jesus. Therefore, it's sometimes called Jesus only. You might recognize it according to that. But it is a form of the ancient heresy of Sabellianism or modalism which teaches that this one person sometimes manifests himself as the Father, at other times he manifests himself as the Son, and at other times he manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. Not that there are three persons subsisting, partaking of all one nature, but one person putting on a different suit of clothing, if you will, Basically, they would teach that the three titles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, refer to three functions of the one person, Jesus Christ. And so this is an ancient heresy which finds its way into charismatic Pentecostal churches today, which is, uh, has been condemned by uh, the church in ages past. Switching over to the opposite extreme of Unitarianism, confessional standards condemn Tritheism. Trithe, not Trinitarianism. Tritheism, which says that there are three gods. Now, we don't believe there are three gods. There's only one God. So, Tritheism. Tri meaning three. The, theism meaning gods. Three gods. That's a heresy as well. There, is, there are not three gods. From beginning to end, the scripture says there is only one God. And so, these are heresies that are condemned by our confessional standards on the subject of the doctrine of God. The third doctrine concerns the decrees of God. The decrees of God. Again, a summary statement of the decrees of God. That God, according to His own most wise counsel and for His own glory, has by one eminent act of His will from eternity purposed and decreed all events in time. And particularly that by his absolute sovereignty he has unchangeably determined the final estate of all intelligent beings, visible and invisible. So this particular doctrine of God's decrees, his eternal decree, says that God has decreed, all that comes into being. That nothing happens. And this this occurred in eternity. God decreed all that comes into being for His own glory, demonstrating His absolute sovereignty over everything. Now, continuing with just a couple more statements related to that doctrine of God's eternal decree, that God of His mere good pleasure, abstracting from all other causes whatever for the praise of His glorious grace to be manifested in time, has from all eternity predestinated a certain definite number of mankind who were at that point Uh, viewed as being sinners, he has predestinated a certain definite amount of mankind in and through Jesus Christ to eternal life. And by the same sovereign will, he has passed by and left others of mankind in their sins for ordaining them to bear the just punishment of their sins. So that, we know, is the doctrine of, of a divine election and reprobation. That God takes sinners and elects those whom he has set his grace and love upon to eternal life, and those whom he does not elect he passes by, but then... He judges them, he foreordains them to judgment for their sins. And so we say that on the one hand, with regard to those who are God's elect, that they're unconditionally elect. They're not elect based upon any foreseen faith or good works in their life. It's unconditional, simply because God in his mercy set his love upon them. But those who are reprobated and judged and condemned by God, we say that is a conditional reprobation because it is based upon their sin. He judges them because they are sinners. So God is merciful to the elect, giving them what they do not deserve, but he's just to the non-elect, giving them exactly what they deserve as sinners. This particular doctrine would teach that God is not the author of sin and yet that man though God is sovereign and uh, let me back up God is not the author of sin that's one thing that it teaches secondly it also teaches that man freely chooses to sin God does not Take a man's arm and twist it behind his back and force a man to sin. Man is responsible for his sin. Yet God, from all eternity, has determined every event, both good and wicked, and determined that it would occur. And yet the confession, as does the Word of God, teach that God is not the author of sin. Now this is where... Many, many people try to reconcile these particular truths, which both are taught in the Word of God, and uh, end up siding on the side of Arminianism, teaching that, <clears throat> that God must, in some way, limit his knowledge. Otherwise, if God did not limit his knowledge in choosing, those who would be saved and for ordaining those who go to hell God would in some way be the author of sin or it would in some way affect his holiness in some way but again we cannot allow our mere finite minds to try to understand completely the mind of God in these things these things are taught They uphold both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Man is held accountable for his sin because he chooses to sin. And yet God is not the author of sin even though he has foreordained all that comes to being, comes to pass. This doctrine of God's eternal decree also denies fatalism. Fatalism essentially teaches that there is some impersonal force which carries man to his destiny. And nothing that man tries to do can keep man from this particular destiny. He's like a piece of wood that's being carried down a stream. And that piece of wood can't swim against the stream. It's being carried along wherever the stream carries it, like an impersonal river or current in a river now this doctrine teaches no it's not an impersonal force that carries man to its destiny it is a very personal god who for his own good pleasure has determined all things that come to pass and yet again man is responsible for all of the decisions that he makes with regard to sin But it is only of God's mercy and grace all the decisions which are righteous and good. God has given him the grace to make those decisions. He does not make those of his own uh, will after the fall. Adam had the ability to do so before the fall, but man after the fall cannot choose to do good. illustration of this is... um, very simple, but the Muslims have a, a, a type of fatalistic view of Allah, their God. And um, there was a man who was cast or fell overboard a ship, and they were on board the ship, both Christians and Muslims. And the Muslims said, as they saw the man drowning out there beside the ship, if God or if Allah wills, this man will be saved." And so they just put their hands in their pocket and waited to see if Allah would will for this man to be saved. But uh, the Christians immediately threw a rope to the man, and the man was rescued. Understanding that God not only has foreordained the ends of this man, whether he be rescued or not from this sea, but has foreordained the means to that end as well. And that is that we are accountable to act responsibly. That's all foreordained of God as well. The fourth fourth doctrine is that of creation. And I will read just the first paragraph from our confession summarizes very nicely the, uh, the teaching of creation. It's found in the Scripture. It says, It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. We'll talk in just a moment about the pinnacle of God's creation, man, but that is a general summary of the doctrine of creation as it's found in our confessional standards. With regard to this uh, doctrine of creation, uh, we find, for example, in this doctrine that it very clearly makes a distinction between the creator and his creation. There is a creator-creature distinction. It is not that the creator becomes in some way uh, infused into his creation or that the creator subdivides himself and that becomes creation. See, these are views of pantheism, and many of the old religions of the ancient world viewed creation this way, that God simply subdivided Himself in some way, and, uh, and that was the, uh, the reason for creation. Um, it's the, it's the view of the Eastern religions as well. They do not have a clear separation between the Creator and creation. In other words, many of the Eastern religions, uh, the native Indian religion, um, the, uh, a lot of the New Age uh, religions uh, today uh, teach that uh, you know, if you see a tree, that's God or a cloud, or the sun, or the moon, or the stars, or whatever. That's God. But those are God's creations. They are to point us to the Creator. They are not God. They are to show us that God does exist, that He is powerful, that He's all-wise, and that He has created all things. But everything is not God. God created everything. This uh, view of creation, as we find in our confessional standards, refutes uh, natural evolution as well as theistic evolution. In natural evolution... God is not involved at all. Uh, Many different theories as to how things began in the naturalistic view, the Big Bang Theory, a lot of different theories, uh, that matter is eternal, that uh, material things are eternal, those are all refuted by what I just read, that God spoke everything into being. That God created all things. All the material that God used to form Adam and Eve was first spoken into being by God. It didn't just pop into being from whatever it was because in the naturalistic view, you still have to go back ultimately to the first cause. Where did that come from? Whatever it was that exploded, where did it come from? And so this confessional uh, view, which I think accurately represents, I believe that it accurately represents, the scripture says that God is the first cause. God created all things. So neither matter nor spirit is eternal. Spirit that is apart from God. God, being spirit, is <coughs> eternal but there are spiritual beings that exist apart from God, but neither are they eternal. All things visible and invisible were created by God. Theistic evolution posits that that God created all things, kind of got the ball rolling, and then allowed the natural processes of time and evolution to bring about the present creation or the pre- present uh, uh, state of things that we see in nature. And uh, uh, that uh, at a particular point in the development of, of all of these things, uh, God uh, took uh, a being that was like, that had already evolved to the point of looking like a man and that he put a soul into this being. Uh, others might say that everything else, other views or subdivisions of theistic evolution might say that, that everything but man was involved in this evolutionary process, but God immediately created man. Well, whichever view one takes, the confession does say And according to the record, the only discussion that really existed at that time as to how long it took God to create things was that some uh, proffered the view that it was instantaneous creation rather than taking six days, but not that it took centuries or, or millenniums or millions of years to bring about that the six days represent epochs, in other words, ages. That view was not pre- uh, present in the Westminster Assembly. But the other view, basically, that if it speaks of creation, it must have come into being, you know, everything must have been just come into being instantaneously. That was apparently a, a view that was present. But the divines specifically say, that the creation was in the space of six days. One thing that we find, for example, in in Genesis chapter 2,
1: I'm
0: kind of getting into uh, the uh, creation of man, and uh, let me simply read again very quickly what it says concerning the creation of man here. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Besides, Beside this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Now, just wanted to say a couple things with regard to the creation of man. I I think very clearly from the confession it says that God created man and it says, created man male and female with reasonable and immortal souls. What we find in Genesis chapter 2 is that, that uh, it says that God formed the body of man from the dust of the ground and then breathed into him uh, his life. And uh, the spirit of God was breathed into him so that he became a living soul. Now, that idea or that phrase, living soul, is the same word, quite interestingly, that is used throughout Genesis chapter 1 for all of the uh, non reasonable uh, beings, the various animals. It says that they were living souls. Now, if theistic evolution, at least this one form of theistic evolution, is accurate, it says that Adam did not become a living soul. Until God breathed into him the breath of life. So he did not evolve from a lower form of life to a higher form of life, because even the lower forms of life in Genesis chapter 1 are called living souls, living beings. But uniquely, what is unique about Adam is that the very breath of God, the Spirit of God, was breathed into him. God breathed into him his own breath, and he became a living being. That is, uh, that phrase implies the image of God, that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. They are different from all other of the uh, creation of God. They were given responsibility for caring for all of God's creation as his vice regents. And let me simply say this before we move on, that with regard to uh, man's creation God established a covenant of works with man while he was in the garden. He established a covenant of works whereby if he kept the, the covenant which God established with him and did not partake of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would receive uh, God's life. You would receive God's life. Now, the next doctrine is that of providence. The doctrine of providence, which teaches this according to our confession. By God's all-powerful word, all that God created, He preserves and He upholds. All of His creatures, He he preserves and he, He upholds them by His own care, by His own providence. He governs and controls all of His creatures' actions, all of the Uh, Things that occur, everything that he has created, he governs and controls. This is the doctrine of God's providence. Nothing is outside of his control in that which he has created. He upholds all things by the word of his power, the scriptures teach. In other words, this particular doctrine... Uh, refutes any view of there being luck, that there be accidents uh, that God is unaware of that catch God by surprise. Uh, God controls all things. He is Lord over all. The sixth doctrine is that of the fall of man. The fall of man. Now, we just uh, learned that uh, there is, in creation God did establish with man a covenant man sinned against that covenant as we will see and the effects of that are given to us here in the fall of man we might summarize the teaching of the confession this way that the first parents of mankind being seduced "...by the craftiness of Satan, transgressed the covenant of works in eating the forbidden fruit, whereby they lost the original righteousness of their nature, were cut off from all gracious communion with God, and became both legally and spiritually dead." And therefore, they being the natural root of all mankind, and the covenant having been made with Adam, not as just a private person, but as a public person, all his descendants, by ordinary generation, are born under the guilt of that first sin, destitute of original righteousness, having their nature wholly depraved and corrupted, so that they are by nature children of wrath, subjected unto all of the penal evils contained in the curse of a broken law, both in this life and that which is to come. Under this particular doctrine, The fall of man, we find condemned some of the ancient heresies like Pelagianism. Pelagianism, which teaches that Adam was not our federal head, he did not represent mankind in the garden, he simply represented himself. He did not represent all of his natural descendants so that all did not sin in Adam, according to Pelagianism. That was condemned as as a heresy as well. Pelagianism also teaches that, that a sinful nature is not communicated from Adam to all of his descendants. We do not inherit a sinful nature from our parents and our parents ultimately back to Adam, according to Pelagianism. This uh, view of the fall of man also condemns Arminianism as a heresy, a false teaching, because this view teaches that sin defiled every faculty of man. Sin defiled, corrupted every faculty of man. His will, his intellect, and his emotions were all corrupted. And That's what total depravity means. That all the faculties of man have been corrupted by sin. Doesn't mean that Total depravity doesn't mean man is as sinful as he could possibly be, but it means that all of his faculties have been corrupted by sin, affected by sin. None are exempt from sin. And Arminianism, however, teaches that the will, the will has been left free. This doctrine... That we find in the confession says, no, not even the will since the fall of man has been left free. The will is affected as well. So that a man no longer can choose that which is righteous and good in the sight of God. And particularly he cannot choose on his own, with his own fallen will, his own depraved will, he cannot on his own choose to become a Christian. He must be regenerated, as we will see. His will must be renewed. He must be given a new will, a new mind, new emotions by God before he can be uh, born again. That is, in fact, regeneration. Also, Arminianism teaches that man can cooperate with God But again, this doctrine of the fall of man teaches that man is dead. He can't cooperate with man. He cannot prepare himself to receive Jesus Christ. The next doctrine is that of the covenant of grace. You see, there is a logical progression where we begin with scriptures, we move to the doctrine of God, we move to talk about God's eternal decrees from eternity. Those you know, eternal decrees have to do with two primary subjects, creation and providence. Creation has to do with the creation of man and then the fall of man, and now the redemption of man. How will man be redeemed from the fall? Well, it's through the covenant of grace. And our confessional standards teach that God in the person of the Father, having purposed to save a certain number of the ruined family of Adam, did from all eternity enter into a covenant transaction with Jesus Christ, His eternal and only begotten Son, who contracted as the second Adam in the name of all his spiritual seed. And so we find in this particular covenant, God established this covenant with his Son. And his Son represents all of those whom God has chosen to save but the covenant is made with Jesus Christ, or with the Son of God. Now, in this covenant of grace, the Father promises to confer eternal life upon a select number given unto Christ, upon the condition of Christ fulfilling all righteousness for them. That's the covenant of grace. Christ promises to fulfill all righteousness, all the righteous demands of God's law that Adam, the first Adam failed to keep, which brought all of his descendants into destruction, into death. The second Adam promises to keep for those whom God has chosen to save. The Lord Jesus Christ did engage to fulfill this covenant. And He not only came in fulfillment of this covenant and kept all the righteous demands of the law, which is what we call the active obedience of Christ, He not only kept all the righteous demands of the law, but He also... Suffered in the place of sinners, of his people that he had chosen to save. He suffered in their place all the wrath of God so that they might be pardoned. In other words, active obedience, Christ fulfilling. All of the just claims, the righteous demands of the law, is the basis, is the grounds for our imputed righteousness from Christ. When we believe in Christ, we are imputed the righteousness of Christ. That righteousness was earned in all of, God's, all of Christ's keeping of the law. The grounds for our pardoning and our forgiveness in Christ is the fact that Christ suffered in our place as a sacrifice for our sins and bore the condemnation which we deserved, so that he bore all of the holy wrath of God for us. That's called the passive obedience of Christ. And that is the grounds for our forgiveness. And so these, these are the primary aspects of the covenant of grace which God established with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This uh, view, this doctrine as it's taught in the Confession, does condemn uh, dispensationalism. Dispensationalism teaches that the covenants, as you find them in the Scriptures, are not related one to the other. That they're independent, separate covenants made with this person, and when that covenant is terminated, the door is closed, and God makes another covenant with this person, the covenant is terminated, closed, and so forth. It Dispensationalism uh, posits a, an antithetical nature between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant so that they are completely opposed one to the other, completely antithetical. Dispensationalism presumes, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, dispensationalism presumes discontinuity. That we, when we look at the New Covenant, we're to assume that everything in the New Covenant is discontinuous with that which comes from the Old Covenant. To the contrary, our teaching, as it's found in the confessional standards concerning the covenant of grace, says that there is one covenant of grace that God has established with his, people, with his son to save his people. And there are various expressions of that one covenant of grace throughout redemptive history. whether it be the covenant God made with Noah or the covenant God made with Abraham or with David or Moses back in there, Moses or the New Covenant, all of those are expressions of the one covenant of grace. The Old Covenant is not different from the New Covenant in substance, it is different only in outward administration. But it is one in substance the covenant of grace. The covenant, the old covenant, promises, it pictures, it typifies Jesus Christ and what he was to accomplish for his people. The new covenant is a covenant of fulfillment. All that was promised, all that was pictured in the old covenant is realized in the new covenant. So they are one as to substance. That is what our confessional standards teach with regard to the covenant of grace. And therefore, we do not presume, the confession does not presume discontinuity from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It presumes continuity and it expects the New Covenant to say that something in the Old Covenant has been abrogated, has been amended, has been rescinded. Otherwise, we presume into the New Covenant continuity from the Old Covenant. It's more like a flower. This view of the Covenant is more like, rather than... Going uh, into one room, closing the door when you exit, going into another room, closing the door—that would be more a dispensational, dispensational view of the covenants, disconnected. Whereas the the view of the scriptures and the covenant and the uh, confessional standards is this: that it's more like one covenant at different stages of development, like a flower that begins as a seed, that you, you see the first the sprout, and then the stem, and then the leaves, and then there's a bud, and then there's a flower. And so this is the view taught by the confession. It's organic. It is connected. The various expressions, it's moving to fulfillment. And that is the biblical view of the covenants. So, again, we do not presume that the laws of God that are mentioned in the Old Covenant have ceased unless God says that they're ceased in the New Covenant. And that's why when we come to the New Covenant, we find laws that say, God says, that uh, certain aspects of the Old Covenant worship, the ceremonial commandments, have been abolished. We, therefore, have every right to assume that those laws that were that pertain to the priesthood, the temple, uh, those types of things have been done away with. They're ended. But we ought not to presume, therefore, that every other law that God gave is abrogated and that God has to say something about it in the New Covenant saying uh, that it is, in in effect, uh, still for us today in order for us to realize it is for us today. The next doctrine is that of Christ our mediator, Christ our mediator. Let's see where we're going here next. This uh, particular Doctrine, as is taught in the Confession, teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person in the glorious and adorable Trinity, being by the Father's appointment constituted mediator and surety of the new covenant, did in the fullness of time assume the human nature, consisting of a true body and reasonable soul, into a personal union with. His divine nature, which two natures, both the divine and the human, in one person, God and man, fully God and fully man, these two natures remain distinct without conversion, composition, or confusion. and being every way completely qualified and furnished for executing his mediatorial offices of prophet, priest, and king, was called to the exercise thereof by God the Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. And so with regard to Christ as our mediator, this particular... Uh doctrine found in the Confession condemns Arianism, which teaches that Christ was a created being, much like uh, the view of the Jehovah Witnesses today. Christ, they say, was the first creation of God. Now, this says that, that Jesus Christ eternally existed, <clears throat> existed as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, This also condemns the uh, three other heresies I want to very quickly mention. Uh, One, Apollinarianism, which teaches that, that in the person of Christ who became man, the man, Jesus Christ, did not have a human soul, but the divine Son of God, replaced the human soul. So, in effect, uh, according to Apollinarianism, Jesus Christ was divine. He was fully divine, but he was not fully a man because he didn't have a human soul. And so, this view, trying to emphasize the deity of Christ, is taken away from the humanity of Christ. And you can't do that. That's heresy. Because he had to be fully man to take our place also it condemns the ancient heresy of nestorianism nestorianism which teaches that christ had two natures which we agree with but it also teaches that christ was two persons which we do not believe is what the scripture says christ had two natures but he was one person one person now That's quite interesting because in the Trinity there's one nature and three persons. But in Jesus Christ there are two natures, human and divine, but one person, coexisting in one person. That means because intellect, emotions, and will are all functions or qualities of a nature that Jesus Christ the one person yet had a human will and a divine will. That's why you find in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, this prayer. Now, as to his divine nature and will, he's not praying that, but as to his human nature, he is looking at the, the, uh, the anguish, the sorrow, what he is about to face. But there is one person. Historianism teaches there are two persons. And then the third is Eutychianism, uh, ancient heresy of Eutychianism, which basically says that though there were two natures, uh, in Jesus Christ they were confused and formed almost a third nature whereby the, the human nature was essentially deified, deified the human nature. The human nature was somewhat swallowed up by the divine nature. And so this is a confusing of the natures and the qualities of God. Interestingly enough, the, the doctrine of transubstantiation and consubstantiation, the, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, which teaches that the elements of bread and wine become the actual body and blood of Christ is really an offshoot of this particular heresy of Eutychianism which says that the human nature was in a sense deified by joining with the divine nature because in transubstantiation you have the body of Jesus Christ being everywhere at the same time. The human body of Christ has been deified, so it's omnipresent. But a body can't be omnipresent. Only spirit, divine spirit, is omnipresent, but not Christ's body. Same thing with the Lutheran view of consubstantiation, consubstantiation whereby not the elements turn into and become the actual body and blood of Christ, but that the actual body and blood of Christ is around, surrounds the elements. The elements remained, remain bread and wine, but Christ's actual body is around these elements. And again, uh, this view, because the, the, it teaches um, that his body is um, everywhere, where a person would be partaking of the elements, it teaches the omnipresence of Christ's body, the ubiquity of Christ's body. And that is, again, saying that the human body of Christ was, in effect, deified. That's what they argue. That's exactly what Lutheran theologians and Catholic theologians argue, that in joining together that the body was, in some sense, deified. But that, again, I say, is an offshoot of the heresy of Eutychianism. Well, next time we're going to begin looking at the, uh, uh, we've looked at the, um, as far as salvation, we've looked at the uh, decree of salvation by God the Father. We've considered the uh, redemption of Jesus Christ who entered into a covenant with his Father to redeem, and came and died for his people. That's the application of redemption. I mean, the uh, I'm not. am sorry. The the accomplishment of redemption. So the decree of redemption, the Father, the accomplishment of redemption by the Son, and now we're going to consider. I should say, the next time we get together, we will consider the application of redemption. Beginning with effectual calling, justification, those uh, various applications, those works of the Holy Spirit, and applying the redemption which Jesus Christ has accomplished and which the Father has decreed. Are there any questions, uh, comments um, that uh, you would like to uh, uh, ask at this time? Rich? A of them. All right.
1: You mentioned that Christ uh, earned righteousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't mean that. You meant for us. I don't know if you said that right at that point. You meant for us, not in any way that he needed to earn it for himself. Okay,
0: yeah, right. Uh, the earning of righteousness was not that Christ was in need of some kind of righteousness himself, that he was insufficient in, in that regard, but he earned that righteousness for us. His law keeping. Uh, was for us. Uh, it was a, uh, a substitutionary. Not only his death was substitutionary, but his whole life was substitutionary in the sense that he was doing uh, all that he did for our benefit.
1: There's two other ones I have with you. You mentioned that Arminianism is a, a heresy. Mm-hmm. Would you say that if somebody actually believes it that it's a damnable heresy?
0: Yes, Arminianism, I think, is would fall into the category of uh, of a damnable heresy, and I think that uh, uh, the uh, canons of Dort, um, uh, one of the express confessions, the Reformed faith, uh, explicitly uh, calls uh, uh, Arminianism a uh, a damnable heresy, and um, uh, the um, the reason being that that in Arminianism, one who is consistent with Arminianism is, is adding to, as uh, the Apostle Paul talks about, the heresy that was present in Galatia. One is seeking to be justified by uh, works, he is adding to uh, the work of Jesus Christ. And so if one is really consistent in that particular view, uh, he is saying, in effect, that he can um, uh, uh, save himself. He may not say that uh, expressly. And uh, I think that many, many of those who, who might call themselves Arminians, and we don't want to again automatically because someone calls themselves an Arminian to assume that we have therefore the power to, to say uh, uh, or the knowledge to say, I know that you are reprobate, uh, but uh, rather uh, what I'm saying is that that kind of consistent teaching leads to a complete diminishing of the grace of God, and uh, it heightens, it, it looks to man uh, for uh, his salvation.
1: I have a question, but it's interesting. I'm talking to somebody on the phone last night. They were reading me a section of Durham's sermons on Isaiah 53. mm Yeah. Uh, the other question has to do with the Trinity, uh, maybe specifically to do with the oneness, Pentecostal verse. Would you consider that a, a damnable heresy or any denial of the Trinity?
0: Yes. Any any denial of the Trinity and any uh, of those forms, uh, whether going the Unitarian route or the Tritheistic route, uh, w- would be uh, a damnable heresy as well. And again, I think we need to. Not simply. People, again, can be very inconsistent and ignorant in in some of these churches and some of the views. We need not simply put everybody because they're in a oneness group that they're automatically reprobate or something like that. We need to, at the same time, talk with them and let them know if you hold this particular view, you are denying God. Uh, And that is a damnable heresy. You cannot hold this particular view and yet be uh, saved because you are worshiping uh, a God uh, other than is revealed in the scriptures. And so I think, again, in any of these heresies... um, People are very, very um, uh, ignorant at times uh, as to what is involved in these particular views, and so we don't want to just start off right off and say, "Well, you're damned. You know, you're you're going to hell." Uh, They may not even understand all the implications and things like that. They may be very inconsistent. You know, take them and work your way through with them uh, in these particular uh, doctrines. Help them to understand uh, what is at stake here. Anything else? I have one, uh, one other one that, uh, Only one more. Okay.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Again, I think that uh, in uh, uh, in regard to dispensationalism, I think that the uh, the view uh, as to whether there is continuity between the covenants, um, I, I have certainly heard. Um, some representations of dispensationalism. And I think that I think that there's a lot of misrepresentation as to what dispensationalists have believed. For example, I've heard that uh, uh, some representatives of dispensationalism believe that in the Old Testament, uh, one could be saved by their works. Now, um, I would say that if one believed that, that's a damnable heresy. Absolutely. And if they called themselves a dispensationalist, that, uh, it would still be a damnable heresy to hold that view. But the dispensationalists I know uh, don't hold that view. And so I, I would put it, I think, myself, in, it's, I believe it's uh, false teaching, it's heresy, but I wouldn't put it into the category of damnable heresy unless they attacked one of those fundamental truths, the fundamental doctrines of, of the scripture. All right, thank you for your questions, and uh, next time, then, we will begin looking at the application of redemption.
2: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need.